Welcome back to episode 21 of the Transit Matters podcast. My name is Jeremy Mendelson, one of your hosts and the producer, and our co-host Josh Fairchild, you will be hearing in a moment. This is part two of an episode that we recorded with Rich Parr of Mass Inc. Polling Group, uh, talking about uh, polling related to Governor Baker, as well as um, what you will hear continuation of in this part of the show, uh, the study for the Urban Land Institute looking at preferences of uh, young professionals and and uh, other related topics, uh, changing demographics and things like that in the Boston area. So uh, I will uh, I will leave out all of the usual intro stuff here, and we will jump right on into the show. But first, I'm going to tell you that you should visit transitmatters.info to find out more about us. Uh, check us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, email feedback at transitmatters.info, and join as a member and donate and help uh, support this work. Now here's another. Um, we brought up a, or I brought up a gender split. Um, so now I was I was surprised to see that only 39% had used Hubway. I thought surely almost everyone had like tried a Hubway bike at some point. Um, but I did see that men were much more likely to use Hubway. So 49% of men used Hubway uh, at some point, as opposed to 31% of women. So I thought that was um, I thought that was surprising. Maybe that should be expected because we know that men are more likely to commute, you know, by bicycle anyway. But. I think that's true. I, I, I think in general, you know, cycling in, in Boston in, in general is, is struggling to get women to, to ride more. Um, because, and I think a large, large part of it has to, save, has to do with safety, and so I think that extends to Hubway just as it would be on your own bike. As we, you know, three white men talking about. Right, yeah. right exactly. <laughs> well, you know, and I think that... Um, I mean, this you in this section right here about access to a car, um, you know, use mode share use, use of new technologies for ride sharing, car sharing, um, hubway things like that. You've got a gold mine for places to jump off for future for, for future polling. Next time you have the opportunity to piggyback some of your questions on somebody else's poll, yeah, I, think I would you love have to. A lot um, of things you want to ask about, yeah, and I would love to do, you know do some of these questions as a as a truly you know representative sample and see. You know, really how how it plays with everybody. It's important to do that as well. Um, you know, I think again, just you know, treat this poll as what it is, and and glean some some interesting conclusions from it. Uh, but you know, yeah, it would be interesting to know do does the public as a whole think that Uber and Lyft should be deregulated more than the taxis? Uh, excuse me, Uber and Lyft should be. Regulated more than yeah. you know what I mean. So uh, yeah, those, those there are definitely questions in here that could be pulled out and asked of a larger sample. I would maybe want to do it just in the one twenty eight mm-hmm. geography, which we've used for some kind of more of a service area. Also, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Well, um, now did you get did you get any um, information? I didn't see. I didn't get all the way through the cross tabs. Did you get any information about the frequency of Uber and Zip cards? This is sort of a check all that apply what you've used, but did you get any yeah, information on how no, often they've used these things? We didn't. I mean, you know, one of the things was because the client was, um, you know, ULI was really more kind of about the real estate. Um, we added, we had a, a commuting section, which they, which was based on what they had originally written, but we really wanted to get into, you know, the workplace preferences, the neighborhood preferences, the housing preferences, because those were the things that we, felt were the meat of the survey for um, the particular client. If I were doing just a transportation survey, then yes, I would go into much greater depth about like, um, because it, we don't know if these people who have 
uh, used Uber, have used it once and hated it, or use it habitually and are addicted to it. You know, same with Hubway. Is it somebody who tried it once and hated it, or is it somebody who relies on it every day? You know, so you could do an entire survey about this this one page of this survey asking about um, these new technologies. Well, it's important if you think about, from the perspective of developers. You know, if they want to have fewer parking spots built in a new built for a new building, and they want to say, well, we're going to have a you know we're going to sponsor. Um, you know, a bike share station here and we're, you know, going to do something for transit or we're going to have, you're going to have fewer spots, but we're going to have more dedicated zip cars. You know, it's pretty important from that perspective if they yeah. want to tout amenities like that. Yeah. And the other thing I would say about, you know, you almost have to approach a poll like this a little bit differently than a political survey. You know, um, you compare the number for Uber, 84% with Hubway, 39, and you say, oh, well, very few people are using Hubway. That still means that four out of ten people in, in in this greater Boston area, in this age group, have gotten on a Hubway bike. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable, you know, level of adoption, um, at least to attempt it or to try it um, for something that's, again, like Uber, not been around for And that may speak more to the proliferation. The, the Hubway stations are not located everywhere yet. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so. Like, that's another thing you could look at. You could look at, you know, for the people who work close to a hubway station or live near a hubway station, um, I, I suspect that number would be even higher than it is. So Now, I was surprised that only 2% have used Bridge. I suspect that that has more to do with um, the service area of Bridge. It does. Than... It does because um, I looked at that and it's very, you know, Bridge, of course, basically is running routes from Brookline, Austin, Brighton into downtown right now. They're not everywhere. So... Um, I, I did a quick check in the in the cross tabs to see well you know what's going on with this and it's it's basically it's just because there are people who are using it in that area but that's a small area compared to the entire survey right so you know and it's also doing something a little bit different than Uber and Lyft right you can pick up an Uber and Lyft anywhere a bridge you've got to know where the route is and it's got to go to where you want to be going so its market is inherently smaller. Than the markets for Uber. It, it does tell me, though, that um, perhaps Bridge has gotten more press for themselves than may be warranted by user numbers. You know, we see lots of editorials yeah. in all different publications um, speaking to, well, so you know, we're going to partner with Bridge or a similar type of you know company, private company, um, to help with bus rides, routes, or nighttime service, or things like that. Um, we talk about, well, is Bridge the next solution to some of these, some of yeah. these routes, and or is uh, it the next problem? You know, as like right. Aloise would say, but, that, exactly. Know, but like, if, if only two percent have written it, it. yet, yeah, but it has this outsize, um, I guess, uh, presence in, in the collective consciousness as opposed to the size of the actual ridership. Well, I think a couple of things on that. First off, I think Bridge is founded here, um, so it's sort of you, there were some business st section stories about Bridge as like a new model. Um, so their their marketing has been very aggressively focused on here and um also i think that uh they're young i mean they're, they're they've only been around for a year or so right i mean they, yeah it, more than a years. year but just well yeah. they out of, out of beta it's been probably only six months already yeah or exactly maybe so, beta, I don't know. so you know give them a little bit of time and yeah. see i mean uber's been around for a little for longer than that and, and they've they've done great but again they're different products they're, they're kind of looking at different markets and if Bridge were serving all the areas that Uber were, were, share, were, were, were serving, then maybe, you know, we'd see. The other thing I think is really interesting is that Uber, Uber Pool's got, like, almost as much as, like, regular Lyft does. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, because that's a brand new service, and yet people are using it. 
I think it's partially because it's really easy to choose when you go into Uber what kind of Uber you want. They prompt you to use it. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Um, so a lot of people are, have, have... Well, it's also... It's a little surprising because um, Lyft... Well, I guess Lyft kind of always had a little more of a, a hipster t- type of vibe. Maybe they're trying to, to get get past that now. I think but Lyft I, is... I mean, uh, it's funny. I went to download Uber on my phone today because I didn't have it. And we were going to a meeting and, and I wanted to have it. And when I searched for Uber in the Play Store, the first top thing was an ad for Lyft. Hmm. And, and they framed themselves as the alternative to Uber. So I think they are very aware. I mean, this this survey, for listeners who don't have the numbers in front of them, the Uber number is 84%. The Lyft number is 27 For For having had used it. For having had used it. So they are very clearly in the number two slot in the market right now. And, and, and I think that they realize that that's where they are. So, you know, they're going to have to find a way to sort of find their niche um, or or they're just, you know, they're, they're not going to be successful. So, Well, let's move on to workplaces. Um, this this took up a lot of space in the survey and we haven't even talked about it yet. So um, so you, you, test, you, you asked about two things. One was what types of amenities um, are important for your satisfaction of your workplace? And the other was what type of benefits are important for uh, satisfaction with yeah you know. exactly we kind of broke them into two buckets because there were some things that are features of your workplace again thinking or ULI is like a real estate um, you know uh, client and they're they're interested in how you build a building that might have these different things so should you build a building that has parking and showers for bikes should you build a building that's eco-friendly and sustainable should you build your floor plate so it's open without traditional offices and cubes but in this kind of new configuration um and and uh or you know should you include things like a coffee bar a gym you know those sorts mm-hmm. of like kind of things when you think of millennials you think of them playing ping pong at their right. you know at right. google and stuff like that um but then also benefits because remember these you know these are big companies that are also have their own employees so what kind of benefits do people care about um right off the bat we ask people um, again, you know, so do you work in an office? 93% of the people in the survey do work in an office. So, uh, again, that's not all the time. Part of the time we don't know, but they are at least going to an office for part of their work. Um, 37% are using this kind of open, this new open office concept. Their their office has collaborative spaces, um, open workspaces. It's not the traditional office and cubes kind of setup. So, I thought that was a pretty interestingly high number for that. Um, it may speak to again to the you know the folks who are taking the survey, kind of focused very downtown, very kind of young professionals that we got some folks who are working in that kind of an environment. Interestingly, though, that open work environment did not was not the most important thing for people. For people, it did a little bit better for folks who actually experienced that environment. So, if you are a person who works in that environment. Um, more people thought that that was important to them. It's a, it suggests that it, it, people who have used it might like it, but it's not nearly as important as the other things in the, that we found in, 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 in looking. The top thing, 78% of people thought that this was very important compared to you know in the 30s for the other options, was that their workplace be located near public transit. So again, we're getting back to this theme of transit that's kind of running through everything. You know, people want to work at places that they can get to via public transit. They want to have that option. Um, and when you add in the next level down, which was somewhat important, 
you get to 93 percent yeah it's very important or something i mean that's you know virtually universal so i mean that's an amazing you know that's another one of those again what you're seeing in the survey is that the 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 theme of the importance of transit starts to permeate beyond the transportation section of the survey into the other sections of the survey and you're seeing people respond to that so i think and i think this answers the question of if you want to know why companies are moving downtown to Campbell yeah. Square or the seaport. Like this is the reason because they want this group of workers to work for them. Yep. And and until you're get and until basically the people who you can attract to the non-transit friendly office parks are already have kids. They're already living out there. That's kind of Yeah, yeah, and and it, we did notice I did notice that if on the age splits um, older the older end of the cohort definitely was more living out in the suburbs and working out in the suburbs so you know this is this is this is skewing a little bit towards the young but location 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 really is like the first rule of real estate and in this case it's location as it relates to transit you know so that was far and away the top thing the other things that were important was again location but being located near restaurants and nightlife so being able to go out um Younger people in particular, younger millennials, younger young professionals liked having the cafeteria in the office, the coffee bar, the gym. As you got older, that mattered less, probably because these younger people are kind of like viewing their work as their social life in a way. Um, You know, we've heard that about millennials. Whereas as you get older, you start to have a life outside of work. You don't want to be spending your entire time at the lounge and playing foosball and doing all these different things. you That's more time you're not working. You want to get home. You want to get home. You want to like, so you don't want to be sucked into all of that. So it also kind of reminds me of when I worked in, uh, when I was working in New York City at one point for this one job and I lasted a couple of months, but I had a view. I was like, I was right in the tip of downtown Manhattan and I had a view of the Statue of Liberty like right out the window. I could walk over anytime I wanted. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. You know, like I see that. And then like a week later, I was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, um, you know, other things that we tested, you know, a quarter of the people thought that bike amenities were very important. So by, by that, we meant parking for your bike or having showers for you to you know, wash up after riding your bike in. You know, 20, I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at when you combine that with somewhat important. That's, you know, over, over a majority were saying that that was important to them. So that's more than the people who are biking. Right. So, I mean, that that yeah. that again, maybe a modes mode modal split kind of thing would would some of those people if they had parking if they had a shower at their work would they be willing to try biking to work possibly i don't know um and then the final two things were just eco-friendly or sustainable office construction so a green office that sort of thing you know 20 percent of people thought that was very important and then the, the again bringing up the rear was this idea of an open work environment it does better with people who have experienced it, but for people who have not experienced it, it's not something that is jumping out. They're not clamoring for it. You know, perhaps they like their offices, they like their privacy, they like having kind of a place of their own, um, or perhaps it's just something that they don't really understand. It hasn't, you know, a, 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 a you know a trend that hasn't gotten to them yet, but it, it's not there yet. So maybe, maybe every building doesn't have to be retrofitted to uh, to be open. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, but it, it it shows that. Again, you know, the people who have experienced it, they rated it a little bit higher. It was sort of in the middle of the pack um, in terms of their preferences, but it wasn't um, – nothing jumped out the way the transit jumped out. That was kind of a universal thing. And what about benefits? Yeah, the benefits was interesting. Again, you know, this kind of applies to, you know, all businesses, you know, not just the people building the real estate, but, you know, if anybody's got employees. But, you know, the top things were, um, you know, flex time. 
you know, having a flexible schedule, open, you know, being able to take the open vacation and being able to work from home sometimes. People really like that. And that was across the board. You know, that was important to young people and old people alike, which I thought was interesting. Um, uh, another hot button issue is paid. Uh, See, that's where I was actually, not to, not to cut you off too much, but yeah, when sure. 68% said flexible work schedule was very important and 97% commute, that's why one of the reasons I was wondering, well, how many of these people have a flexible you know, uh, commuting schedule where they can commute at 10 a.m. or they can, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, I no. definitely was wondering if, I guess you didn't, weren't able to slice it any thinner than that. But. Yeah, and remember, we don't, the way that we ask this question, we don't know if these people have this at their work. We asked it as how important is it or would it be to your satisfaction at work? For a workplace to offer the following benefits, so what what I would interpret this is is meaning is that there is a desire to see this. Some people may have this already and really like it. Other people may not have it and really want it. Um, but you know, it, it does quite well. Also, does extremely well is paid um, family leave, maternity paternity leave. That's a good um, point because leave. only what eighteen percent had kids. So yeah, that's even, a very aspirational type of. Well, it's aspirational, but I mean, you know, paid leave could also be for other medical issues. It could be, for, you know, it, yeah. it's not exclusively for family paternity. That's one where you do see splits on age and on gender, actually. So women were more excited about the, the family leave than men, although both really liked it and rated it highly. Um, and then older uh, also, you know, uh, people who are a little bit, you know, getting getting on to having families, people who had kids definitely value the having family leave. So these are, I mentioned those two because they're kind of two hot button issues. You hear um, Democratic candidates talking about these as sort of mm. things that are going to come up in the 2016 campaign. And, you know, for this young cohort, it's something that, that they're looking to see from their businesses. The other thing I would say, again, kind of getting to this, this theme of um, transit, 55% um, thought, so a majority thought that getting a free or discounted transit pass from their work was very important. Um, only 30% uh, thought that getting free or discounted parking from their work was very important. So again, there's this kind of preference for transit over parking, transit over you know the car um, in, their, in their mode choice. I would submit that those two things are probably a little bit loaded in the way that you know you think of it, that it's asked and the way that it's thought about because it's like, okay, would you like, you know, a lot of companies have cash, sort of done the parking cash out thing where it's like, okay, well, we're giving you a parking spot now and like now we're going to give you, you know, we're going to increase your salary by what you're paying and we're not going to give you that free parking spot anymore. And so it's sort of like, okay, well, the free parking spot, is it really, you know, in the grand scheme of things, does it, does it matter? You know, it, it's based on like what you're, like there's got to be a starting point, which is what you're making now. And then... You know, free parking on top of that. Like, if you don't have free parking, like, would you like free parking on top of that, or would you like, you know, a, what is it, a thousand dollar or two thousand dollar raise? You know, what, whatever the same amount. You know, I don't forget what it costs to park. Well, year, but yeah, I mean, does that make any sense? Uh, you know, we framed all of these as benefits. That was kind of the stem for all of these. We framed them as benefits. I mean, you could say with any of these, you know. You can have your health or wellness program, or you can have a raise. You can have your flex time, or you can have a raise. You can have, you know, we, one thing we didn't have on here was more money, right? So maybe more money trumps all of these, but <laughs> just, in, just so. in terms of this universe. If you think about it, I for mean, more than 50% of the respondents are working in basically what you might call downtown Boston. That doesn't include necessarily Cambridge, but um, so parking in downtown Boston is going to be in the 300 to $500 a month range. So oh, yeah. multiples more expensive than the transit pass, yet eighty six percent 
say the transit pass is very important as if they're going to have a subsidized benefit and only 30%, you know, so you, yeah, so yeah, parking like, is. Yeah, 55 so, to 30. So it doesn't correlate to the price of the benefit as much as the preference. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. If you were going just on dollars and cents and saying, gee, I could get myself a, um, you know, uh, a parking space, that's more, it's worth more financially, but then I have to drive to get to the parking space. It seems as if people are saying I would rather get the free or discounted transit pass and, and, and have my commute be via transit than having the free space. Which I think is good news for employers because they can pay much less yeah. and buy transit passes for their employees than Again, I mean, parking spaces. Right. As you indicated, developers looking to develop, um, you know, this is a pretty this is a signal to me that parking is less important in terms of the the commercial development, the downtown working development, maybe for this particular generation. You know, we'll see as they get older and start to have kids and change their patterns and start to live in the suburbs, etc. But for this young group yeah. that everyone seems to be obsessed with catering to right now it's it's less that's a good point because if the developers thinking of from that perspective you know i think they say that you know if you're talking about parking garage type of uh, construction a parking space uh, may cost forty thousand dollars or more you know per per space to build into the building yeah so the developer could almost say i'd rather have that be usable floor space rent that out and then the developer could even subsidize the parking passes Um, the landlord could offer the parking passes uh, because they save so much money on the parking. Yeah, no, there was a... I, I said park, I, the, yeah. the developer could subsidize transit. the transit passes with yeah. the money they saved on parking. I went to the Boston Foundation housing report card event last week. Um, actually, Barry Bluestone came to our ULI event and asked a question from the audience, so I decided I would return the favor. Um, but one of the one of the developers who was on their panel said that it, the cost of a parking, to build a parking spot, actually, he didn't say the cost of building a parking spot, he just said the cost of a parking spot in one of these seaport buildings that they're building is $90,000. Um, I'm assuming that's the cost to build because I think they could probably get even more than that for that. But And then he said that it's because of their building have to go down into the basement to build it and there's you're basically below the water table because you're in the seaport and it's just, hmm. it's a crazy thing that they have to do to, 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 you know, to build the parking. So yeah, if a developer doesn't have to go as deep in order to build fewer parking spaces, that's a great thing and it means that they can charge less in rents and it means that it's a lot of parking. It. Or that's a lot of transit passes. Yeah. It is. It's a lot of transit passes. But the other, you know, um, well, this gets into a policy question about should these businesses be doing more to subsidize the team? That's a lot of transit subsidy. <laughs> if you're thinking 90,000 times however many parking spaces yeah. that they won't have to build. Yeah. So, I mean, looking at their bottom lines, it may make more sense for them to, to write a check to the MBTA than it is to build those um, build those parking mm-hmm. spots. I'm curious. When we, you know, we talk about... about using transit and all that and it's like it hasn't come up here um, it's the question of reliability and and the so frequency reliability coverage all the things that relate to service quality and do we know anything at least from this survey about um, what people think about the level of transit service is it good enough or you know do they, they say anything about like I want to use transit but I can't because it is not good enough where I am yeah, we don't know. Um, again, again, if I were doing this just as strictly as a transit survey, I definitely would have asked questions about perceptions of quality. Um, we do know that reliability is the second most important thing for people in terms of their decision of how to commute. So A is, is there a bus or a train I can take? And then B is, is, uh, that, is that bus or train going to get me to where I want to be reliably? So they do 
think about that. If the if if they look at their phone and they see that the bus isn't coming, or they don't they don't trust that the bus the bus said it was going to be there yesterday and it wasn't there, and they and may, give, they may throw up their hands and get in their car. That was more important than even the cost. Was just yeah, it was actually more important than travel time. Yeah. Right, so right. You know, that makes sense. If I know I'll get there on time, yeah. I, I, I'll even spend more time in right. transit. I'm, willing, I'm trans- willing. If yeah. I know the bus is going to get me there, I'm willing to take the 45 minute transit bus to train ride or something, as opposed to getting in my car and maybe being there in 35 minutes but having to deal with traffic or something. Like that. I think this is in um, in Jared Walker's book. He talks about uh, you know the the things that people get wrong about transit. People who, don't, who aren't experienced users get wrong about transit. The motor is there and. One of them is, is definitely the this issue of, of reliability where um, they talk about and, and frequency and they talk about he, he, talk, he talks about how basically if the, the person who is not really experienced with transit but is you know maybe the planner they might be thinking about speed and whereas and so you you think that all oh, the commuter rail is wonderful and you can live a wonderful life along the commuter rail and do all the things you need to do but it, in reality it's it's it comes down to the trans you know the waiting time. And, uh, yeah, yeah so the frequency is more important than speed. Right. Yeah, and you know, I mean, even if your commute time is longer, uh, if you, you could drive shorter, but if you've ever if you've ever seen um, the financial district uh, at between five and six, it can sometimes take forty five minutes to get out of the parking garage. So you have to add that to commute time, which people don't factor in. So, well, now we're moving into um, the more the, the indirect part of the survey. This is more about straight, more land use. This is. Um, living arrangements and preferences for location of home. Um, so this this relates more indirectly to transit, but it's a very it's a fascinating um, section of the survey. Yeah, yeah. So in, you know, as I said, ULI is doing commercial real estate. I guess you could say this is kind of the residential real estate part of the of the survey in terms of you know where do people want to live neighborhood wise? How do they want to live? What are their current situations? What do they kind of aspire to? Um, you know, interestingly, I think. Thought this was sort of interesting. Most of the people we talked to, 58%, are living with a partner or a significant other, right? So even if they're kind of on the younger end of the of the, the, the spectrum, they're sort of settled. They're they're in some sort of a relationship. Uh, only 14% are living alone, and a quarter are living with roommates. Um, the reasons why they're living with roommates is interesting, as we mentioned. Kind of affordability is is important. You know, three quarters are saying that. By sharing the rent, they can live in a better and livelier neighborhood. A similar number say that sharing the rent allows them to live in a bigger or nicer place. Um, and But 65%, so two-thirds, said, I can't afford to live on my own, period. Um, so it tells you something when a very relatively affluent group of people is, is choosing to, to – um, has to basically have a roommate you know, because they can't afford the rent on their own. Um, and, and of those people, you know, we asked them, would you prefer to live on your own if you could? And 56% said yes. Um, 26% said no. So there's some people who, for whom, you know, living with roommates is the way to go. But a majority of them are saying, yeah, I would much rather be out on my own than living with roommates if I could. Although, like you, I think you already mentioned that the 77% said sharing the rent allows me to live in a better or livelier neighborhood than I can afford on my own. So it does seem that... People would like to have their own space, but they'd also, even more, they prefer to live in the best location they can they can get. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it, part of this also could be kind of putting a positive spin on a tough economic situation. It's like, well, on the bright side, you know, I get to live in a nicer place, and and um, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. There's you know, some segment of that seventy-seven percent is also the sixty-five because right. they were allowed to select different options, right? Um, 
<clears throat> so it's kind of it's kind of both of them are kind of tangled up together. Um, but you're right. There is something about this generation that kind of doesn't mind the social aspect and wants to live kind of in a social social kind of situation um, if it means that they get to sort of experience this, the, the city at this particular stage in their life. Um, three, uh, two-thirds of the people we talk to are renting right now, and a third are uh, own. Um, but almost everybody is planning on owning. And I think this is really interesting because there's been a lot of talk about you know, since the Great Recession and since the kind of bubble, the housing bubble burst, whether or not um, this new generation would somehow value home ownership less than previous generations have. Now, forty-five percent said that they thought they would own in the next five years. So we're definitely talking longer time horizons for mm-hmm. everyone because you're, you're, everyone thinks they will own, but you're getting out into. 10 years or more. Yeah, the vast majority of people we talked to, 45%, said that they would like to buy in the next five years. 38% said that they would like to buy between five and 10 years from now. Do we know the breakdown of overall like, across everybody in, in Boston or in the region of how many people rent and how many own? I mean, I mm-hmm. guess it's probably like somewhere between half and two thirds are renters, but. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Renting seemed, I mean, for again, for a relatively affluent group, I mean, you know, renting seemed kind of hard yeah. for me. But it's going to, as, as you get older, you're going to see more owners because they yep. owned right. for a longer period of time. They bought in when the prices were lower. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, yeah, I, I think that it, you do see that if you look at the age, the age splits in the survey. But cool. Yeah, so I think it's interesting in this survey that, um, you know, two thirds of the folks are renting. But of them, virtually all of them want to buy something in the, in, at some point in the future. Um, and when you ask them, well, what do you want to buy? Do you want to buy a single-family home? Do you want to buy like a townhouse? Uh, you know, kind of a. a I, I think of this as sort of a, you know, a unit in a triple decker, which is a very unique kind of style of housing we have in Boston. Uh, do you want to buy like an apartment or a condo in a bigger building? You know. There's a slight preference for single-family home, but most people, 38% of uh, uh, the plurality of the folks we asked said any of the above. Uh, I want to buy something. So what this says to me is that this generation, this, this, this group of young professionals that we talked to still values home ownership. They, they see it as kind of part of the American dream, part of kind of the path to wealth that they're, you know, I want to buy a place. I want to have that equity. I want to have that value. There was some speculation, you know, would this generation not want that? Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, millennials are transient. They want to be able to move around. They don't, they're not as fixed to a place. What this says to me is that perhaps they are right now kind of on the younger end of the spectrum, a little bit more transient, but they do want to actually own something and they do see the economic value of owning something. And I think part of that transient nature is also putting a, a positive spin on the fact that they can't afford to own something now anyway, so they might as well enjoy being able to move around, but yeah. like, like you said, a plurality preferred a single family, but that really that plurality is only 30% specifically must have a single family. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the vast well, majority yeah, the actual, was. Yeah, the actual plurality is, you know, 38% said, said any of the above. Of the, of the people who had a preference, 30% said that they wanted preferred a single family home. But again, that's a relatively small, you know, percent. And then, and then when, when, we, when, we, when we also mix that in with the locations that they prefer... Um, right. Then I think that that will start to tell us a little bit more about what types of homes will be in those locations. Yeah, and, th- and then this kind of gets to, you know, where do you want to live? So we kind of ask people an open-ended question, 
you know, if you were looking for a new place to live in which neighborhood or community would you start looking first? And, you know, the things that, that kind of popped up, Cambridge was a really popular one. A lot, and, and, and within Cambridge, Central Square jumped out was, was, was one that got a fair amount of play. And I thought that was fascinating because, you know, when you normally think of, of Cambridge, you think of Davis or out in Somerville or Porter Square or Harvard Square or Kendall Square. But it seems, it seems as if people were kind of homing, honing in on kind of Cambridgeport Central Square areas, an area that they'd like to live. I think in Redline. Um, they're just zeroing it on Redline. Yeah, people people uh, said they want to live near transit. Some people didn't even name a neighborhood. They said they just, I want to live on a transit stop. Um, Jamaica Plain was a big one again. Somerville was a huge one. Cambridge and Somerville were the top places that people wanted to live in our survey. Uh, when they when we asked them, well, where would you like to live? But what do, what do they have, all have in common? They have you know relatively good access to transit. You know, In Somerville, Cambridge, you can get to the Redline. You can take a bus to get to the Redline in most places. You know, in those mm-hmm. in those spots. So, you know, and there are also uh, more you know neighborhoods that have almost thoroughly been gentrified at this point. I mean, the places yeah. that we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, of course, I mean, Jamaica Plain, Jamaica Plain was prominent. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, JP is definitely on its way to being yeah, gentrified, if not already. Yeah, you're but, old days, yeah. but Central yeah. and Cambridge is, is, I think, the neighborhood in, in Cambridge. I guess maybe East Cambridge is also relatively ungentrified. But you know, I kind of I, I saw that and I was like, oh, gee, I wonder if people are being priced out of. Harvard Square, they're being priced out of Porter Square, and they're they're now kind of looking at Central as the, the place where they can they can get a place that's on the red line. Yeah, I too was looking and, at these you know, at the, the sort of the words that were popping out and wondering whether these locations were aspirational locations or whether these locations were realistic locations. Yeah, well, we debated that actually in the question. You know, the, one way to ask the question would be like, if money were no object, where would you want to right. live? But that doesn't really tell you very much because. But instead, we framed it as if you were looking for a place right now, you know, kind of put it in your head that like this is an actual thing. What would you do? Right. So and that, so that could of, be renting or buying. Yeah, or, that kind of creates a sort of a, as you call it, fiscally constrained, um, you know, yeah. question. So we were hoping to, that people would answer this in a way that was realistic. So well, yeah. and I, I guess if a quarter of the respondents were living um, in downtown Boston already, then you know that they probably have a good understanding of what they can afford and. Yeah, with their roommate situations. Yeah, um, but you know, the next thing we asked them is we wanted to kind of we did the same thing we we did on the workplaces, but we did it on neighborhoods. So, what are the factors that are important to you when you're choosing a place to live, a neighborhood or a community to live in? And um, you know, once again, the transportation things just really kind of rose to the top. You know, ease of commute, access to public transit, and being able to walk to things, walk at walkability to amenities were really were like the top things. 81% said that ease of commute was really important, very important. 80% said access to transit, so basically a wash. So those two things are kind of a tie. I, it made me wonder if that's sort of for, for this group, ease of commute equals transit almost. It could, um, but it also, I mean, that's also a little bit of a broader term. So it could be transit plus the car people are all both both choosing that thing. So that's why it kind of rises. And then, but then the walkability, you know, so when they're in their neighborhood, they want to be able to walk to stuff. They want to be able to get to the, the, the shopping. They want to get to the restaurant. They want to get to the laundromat, all the different things that they need. Um, so that's important as well. You know, shopping options were good. Crime and safety was a little bit less important, which I thought was interesting. Um, we also asked a question in another 
part of the survey where we basically kind of asked a trade-off between price and safety. We said, would you be willing to live in a neighborhood that was less safe if it was more affordable? And a surprising, I think, number of people said that yes, they would be able, they would be willing to make that trade-off, which I think says a lot about a how unaffordable Boston is, and b how relatively safe Boston is. Because if crime were more of a concern in more parts of the city, it would be, um, you know, more. I think that you would see a different split on that. So well, and only five percent in an earlier question. Only five percent said they. Um, they lived with roommates because they didn't feel safe living alone. Yeah. I mean, I guess that maybe gets more to that cost is the real factor, but... I was going to bring up the issue of... Um, of um, just lost my train of thought. Oh, um, in terms of, of being... Damn it. I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's going to come back to me. Yeah, that's okay. But in terms of, again, you, know, you see this distinction, this preference for transit over over driving or parking. So 80% said that access to transit was very important in choosing a neighborhood. T- only 25% said that availability of on-street parking was important. I know what it is. Can I say it now? Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> Please the, do. The issues of safety and crime. Um, I think this is, as the city has gentrified more and more, um, it has sort of gotten safer because those pressures have been there on the city and, um, you know, and, and pushing, uh, pushing a lot of people out. And I think the there. I mean, just thinking for myself, you know, like I'm a, I'm a white person, you know, and a, a male. Um, but I there are very very few places in Boston where I wouldn't feel safe walking at night. Yeah, you know, and just just from that perspective, um, you know. So I, I think that culture. Whereas, like most, I would say most cities in the U.S. would probably have a lot more. There'd probably be a lot more of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, again, I think it's it's two things. I think it's a cost is a big is is really weighing on people's minds, and I think that safety is not weighing on people's minds because things are relatively safe, and um, there are pockets of the city that are that are that, where people feel unsafe, but they're relatively small and they're relatively you know kind of very kind of concentrated places. I also so wonder I, because this is real quick. I also wonder because ninety percent of the survey respondents here are white. When, and, and a lot of these neighborhoods are rapidly gentrifying. I wonder, and I don't, I don't think it was asked in, in, in anything that could give us this sense, but I wonder how much um, institutional racism plays into uh, people's ideas of what's a safe neighborhood and where they want to live. Yeah, I, I, it could. I have no way of knowing that from this particular survey. I will say that there was somebody, it might have been Pew last week, did a something about kind of perceptions of safety and the people who were uh, most likely to say that they felt unsafe, you know, walking in their neighborhoods at night were um, urban dwellers and women, um, which kind of makes sense. Uh, uh, but these particular urban dwellers, it's, it seems like it's a little bit less of a concern for them. And I think you're right. It's the, who they are. It's where they live currently. And um, and also, I just I think it's a feature of our city that the city is rel- right now is relatively safe. So... I, want, I wanted to emphasize the comment you were just starting to make about parking because we just, was it last week, um, saw an eruption about parking issues in South Boston again. Oh, yes, my um, friend Gary <laughs> You know, it's just, and I found it unbelievable that we're still arguing over this. And this survey proves it, at least in this part of the country, or at least in Boston, 
that the younger people who are going to move into that new apartment building that's going to replace that sacred parking lot that you have, yeah. they don't care about the parking. Like, they're not going to be using the parking. Yeah, it's funny. When we got this survey back, uh, the first person I thought of to pitch it to was Garrett because, like, he's been writing a lot on parking stuff, and he just basically stuck a stick into that, the wasp's nest of parking in South Boston. You know, I love Garrett because he, he does it on purpose. He does it because he wants to, like, kind of court the... You know, it's a, it's a, the hot take or the controversy. Is he the one that wrote about the the group of people in South Boston yeah. that got together and yeah. bought the lot to yeah. keep it from being developed so they yeah. can have their parking spaces? Yeah, he's, 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 <laughs> he's a really interesting guy. I mean, he's um so he's he's an editor for Boston Magazine, but he used to work for Mass Live and wrote um, you know political stuff for them. And but he's a libertarian actually. But he's he's a libertarian who's very very interested in urbanism and transit and and sees the value of that and you know you know, market solutions for these kinds of problems. So he's a big kind of, you know, dynamic pricing of parking and things like that. He's taking up, I joke with him that he's taking up the, the, the mantle of Paul McMurrow now that Paul has gone mm, off no, to he's, the, he great, the great beyond of the Baker administration. He can't we got to do a show one day on, um, on parking and, yeah, we got to do a You should have parking. Garrett on. I mean, he's got strong opinions about it. And he can, he's been on the front lines because all these people have been, you know, emailing and, angry emails to him about what he wrote and, and all those things but yeah. I think that yeah it, it just seems like for this group of people parking is not as much yeah. of an issue I do know that from our own political surveys where you do a more representative sample parking is a huge issue mm-hmm. um, in the city of Boston yeah. it is really kind of the third rail so, so only 25% said park, said even on street parking was very important only yeah, 25% yeah. even cared if they had on street parking well we only asked about on street parking because we were asking specifically about the neighborhood right mm-hmm. in the next question <clears throat> where we asked to be about features of like your home or your apartment again this was asked to both owners and renters right um, uh, what we found was that uh, again you know off street parking was kind of middle of the pack down a little bit lower so having a parking space in your building or having a a driveway or some other place to stash your car um, only 18% thought that that was I can't be right Um, excuse me there's a typographical error in the in the in the top line but um, it just it was not very it was was not very um, you'll see it when you see it it's it's, just a typographical error but uh, it was just not one of the things that did extremely well in terms of the, the percentage yeah. of people who are very important so now um bike i thought it was interesting when it comes to bike amenities um because only 11 percent said that bike amenities were important for their their choice at home even though 22 percent were commuting by bicycle so they didn't and i read those parking for bicycles yeah yeah well you know so that that's com- conflating a couple of things right so if you've got a single family home or uh, a condo unit in a triple decker, you're not going to really have parking for bicycles. Parking for bicycles is more like a apartment building kind mm-hmm. of situation. So, you know, a person answering that question may be thinking about where they want to live as much as, as 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 that, and and think, well, gee, I really want to live in a single family house, or I want to mm-hmm. live in a triple decker, so I don't really care whether it has parking for bicycles. So that, that type of question might make more sense when you're thinking of amenities for commercial like office buildings. Because uh, with yeah. residences, there's so many different ways that it could present itself. Well, like but it the, uh, another way to think of it is that if you were to break this question out and, out and look at the responses just to people who want to live in um, apartment buildings, you know, who express a preference for living in that 
in a, in a, in a traditional apartment building with a doorman and all those mm-hmm. kinds of features okay. and amenities. If they like that, if that's their, their bag, if you will, you might see that the parking becomes more important. So I guess, I guess the more important one that I, that I should have stated then was that, um, when it comes to what they're looking for in a community or neighborhood where they want to live, 21% said bike lanes or bike paths were very important in the place where they would want to live, which I guess lines up better with the 22% that commute by bicycle. So, uh, Yeah, um, that's right. Let me take a look here. Yeah, bike lanes, it was not. It was definitely on the lower end of the scale in terms of uh, level of importance, uh, bike lanes and paths. Um, it was the second to last thing that people said. The lowest thing was actually ethnic diversity. So, yeah, it's not it's people. People. Forty one percent said that it was somewhat important, but only sixteen percent said it was. It wasn't a deal breaker. It was. Yeah. I think. I think I would define that as it would be nice. It would be a it's nice thing to have, but it was not the the, the the foremost thing on people's minds. Now, before we get into the the last kind, was sort of like alternative living arrangements, uh, as far as like you know, micro apartments, things yeah. like that. But, I'm waiting all night for that one. Okay, there we go. I, I did want to, you know, we skipped over this earlier. I, I had seen that only 50% of respondents see themselves living in Boston in 10 years. 31% say they don't know. But, you know, did, and I was having trouble understanding, did that mean when they said 50% could see themselves living in Boston in 10 years, did that mean that actual, like, prop, the proper of Boston? Or did that mean, you know, close in to Boston? Do you have any sense of what, they, what, what was meant by that? Well, the way I would interpret that question is um, we ask people 10 years from now, do you see yourself living in the greater Boston area, right? So that's kind of like, you know, you could still be living in Waltham or Wellesley or Weston, to use my W's, uh, (laughs) but still in the greater Boston area. We're basically trying to say, do you want to stay in this Part of so that's world. more of a regional question. It's a regional than it was. question. Yeah. So, and, but it's, and, it's still kind of important. You know, if it shows that there's not there's not a huge attachment maybe to to living in the, the, these people can choose. They you know yeah. if work or something takes them somewhere, they're they're free to go. I guess so. Yeah. One one way to look at it is say yeah. Only forty nine percent said yes. The others were split between saying no, I'm not going to live here. I'm going to go somewhere else. Or thirty one percent said I just don't know right now. Which is a fair thing, probably, you know, younger people on the end of the spectrum probably said, I'm just not sure. But you're right, that does speak to sort of the transient nature of, um, you know, of this generation. There's some people here maybe not going to be here in 10 years, so uh, their preferences may uh, somehow count less, right? They, they I mean, that's... They it, don't vote. <laughs> what I was thinking of when I was reading that was when we were uh, speaking with uh, Jim Aloisi a few podcasts ago, and he was saying, you know, we have to think about... We've got this this great group of young professionals that are choosing to live here, and he's saying they're not here because of the weather, you know. And and here in this survey, he he was positing that transit was something that it wasn't going to be important to them. Now this survey proves that transit really is important to them. Yeah. So that kind of brought me back to what he was saying was that you know if we can't deliver the things that are important to them, then they can just leave. And this question kind of seems to show that. Yeah, I mean it would be interesting to have asked or and ask in a future survey, you know, of those people who do want to leave, why? You know, what is it that you think? You know why is why don't you want to like kind of settle down here? And it, some people may just say I'm young, I just don't want know what I want to do yet. Some people might say the weather's terrible, I don't want to live through another winter like that. Um, others might say it's too expensive. But but you know tr- you know could improving the transit system be a way to keep more of these people? That's that's I think the question the gym is getting at, right? Um, I well, I mean, if, 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 if there is some evidence here that says yeah. that yeah, maybe if you did make that better, that would be something that would keep people here, but. Um, there's also just generational life factors that as you get older, things change and 
you know, you just want to move on. Um, the, the, the thing that I will say that's interesting is we also ask people, do you think you will move to the suburbs? That's what's the exact next thing I was going to um, bring up. And, you know, most people actually do think they're going to move to the suburbs at some point. Um, but I will say that 20, 29%, so you know, 3 out of 10 people basically, said, no, I'm never moving to the suburbs. Um, interestingly, that correlates pretty strongly with not wanting to have kids. So there's some... there's some. So they're backing it up. That's not just wishful thinking. There's some strongly urban-minded people who are thinking that they're not going to have kids that do want to live in the city. And somebody at the ULI event observed, you know, that looks like a small number relative to everything else, but... A generation ago, that would have been 10% of people said that, no, I'm never going to leave the city. So there's this kind of urban, hardcore group within this cohort that really does think that they're going to be kind of in the cities for the long haul and don't want to leave and just, you know, really, really feel like that's where they want to be. So, again, you know, the question becomes, what what do those people need and, you know, do we want more people to be in that 29%? Do we want to grow that number by you know, policy to you know, give them the amenities that they're looking for, or are they going to inevitably leave for whatever reason? And the reasons that we, you know, gave people, for, for the people who said that they were interested in moving to the suburbs, you know, we asked them, um, for people who are already in the suburbs or people who are th- open to moving to the suburbs, you know, why? What are the things that matter to you? Um, the, the top thing was that they wanted more space, right? So, we have this idea that the millennials want to live in small spaces and aren't as attached to things mm-hmm. and, you know, are more about the experience of being in a place. Well, you know, the top reason why people would be open to moving to the suburbs was they want more space. And then the second thing is the lower, it's a lower cost of living. Um, after that are the quality of the schools, um, uh, preferring a quote unquote more suburban lifestyle, which we left pretty vague. Um, you could argue that more space is part of a suburban lifestyle, so it's interesting that that didn't do as well. And then crime and safety was the lowest concern. Again, you see this sort of crime and safety is not something that's driving people out of the cities right now. It's not something that's like um, a huge, huge. And even concern. schools wasn't, but I think that probably has more to do with they're not at that stage of their life. Yeah. Maybe. Again, if you if you split this by age, if you split this towards the older end of the cohort, the schools becomes a much more important thing for them. Um, now, I do think this is also a group of people, uh, um, income-wise, that may also assume that they can afford to pay for private school if, they, you know, if they're still in the city. Uh, yeah, possibly. Um, on, on the other hand, maybe if the city is unaffordable to them, they would rather go and you know, save money out somewhere else and put that money into private school if they feel like the That's schools aren't, aren't as good um, somewhere else. But... <clears throat> You know, one of the interesting, you know, we, I'm not, cl- I'm not sure if people, when they are thinking about the lower cost of living, are factoring in the cost of transportation from the suburbs into the city. You know, there have been studies ULI has done them of showing that when you factor in housing and transportation costs, living in, you know, the urban core in Boston actually looks pretty good, because as you get farther out, you're paying more money to drive in. But it's not clear to me that, that people are factoring that. Well, it's also um, factoring in the, the, the property taxes, too. <coughs> property taxes in Boston are astoundingly low compared to property taxes yes. in a lot of the suburbs. So you have to tack that on to the price of your house, and that but that price keeps getting bigger every year. You mm-hmm. know, you have to pay that, that yeah, tax yeah, bill yeah. every year. Yeah. So yeah, you, are, you are paying for um, that more space with more property taxes. 
And, and like you said, you know, and when you get to a place where you have to have two cars, you know, because a lot, a lot of these respondents have access to a car, but that doesn't mean they have two cars. Yeah. So if they're getting to a place that have two cars, that's a, a huge expense too. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. So now you mentioned micro units. Um, and I was going to say, you know, despite what a lot of the marketing, we're seeing luxury units all the time being launched here in Boston. And despite all the marketing, um, 70, 76% of the millennials don't really seem to care about the amenities in their housing selection. And, and I'm referring to doorman, gym, pool, um, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and, and only 28% said that they would uh, be likely to live in a micro unit, even if it would let yes. them afford to live in a great neighborhood. Yeah, that was really interesting. So these were actually, these are some questions that were in the original um, ULI survey that, that we kept um, because we thought they were fascinating and also they're just so ULI, right? They're so keyed into the real estate market right now. Um, and what we found basically is there were very few people who wanted to live in a micro unit. As you said, um, 10% said they'd be very likely, 18% said somewhat likely, so combined only 28%. Although that's, compared to how many microunits are out there, that's still quite a niche for microunits. Yeah, exactly. And then same with this, uh, this This is a, I, I, I'll be honest, I had never heard of this concept before we tested it in the survey, but this idea of cohabitation designated housing. So the idea, it's almost like, I think it's like a millennial dorm kind of situation. Well, it'd be almost like a co-op or collective. You know, where, where, yeah. where um, co-housing is a little yeah. bit more... Yeah, co-housing is a little bit more like your own space, but you like share certain facilities and stuff. I, I've heard right. these being more common, kind of like in the just after World War II, or kind of in that era before everybody had bathrooms and yeah, there were I've heard of apartments with shared kitchens or shared well, bathrooms. Well, there's different models. Everything that's all yeah. just is new. Yeah. Again, right? There's different like models. Streetcars are coming back right. too. You know, I, I think mean, I think one of the one of the big models is is also like you have your own unit. But it's, it's like an apartment building, yeah. but there's like some shared facilities and you sort of like, well, it might hang out in other space. Like if you have kids, you know, so they would have other kids well, to play with and that sort of it stuff. It makes sense. I mean, if you're talking about, so if you're going to say maybe they'll be interested in living in a 300 square foot micro unit that's surrounded by amazing restaurants. So they might be willing to share a kitchen with other people because they're not cooking as much. Yeah. Maybe they'll share a bathroom too, but they're saying definitely they're not going to share a bathroom. Is what the respondents were Well, this is the question I was going to ask you is that how do you define, how did you define this micro unit? So the way we asked it was, um, how likely would you be to live in a micro-unit apartment? 300, this is okay. online so they could see the text. So sure. parenthetically, 300 to 400 square feet versus an average-sized apartment of 600 to 800 square feet. So half the size, basically. Okay. If, it were, if it were in a neighborhood in which you wanted to live but otherwise couldn't afford. So already we're kind of establishing the trade-off here. Like the, we're saying this is a... You live in a great neighborhood, but you got to have, have less space. Um, and again, only 28% of people took us up on the offer, if you will. <laughs> um, now, again, thinking of this as a marketing type thing or a market segment, 28% um, of this cohort is still a significant number of people for someone who's looking to market a, um, a micro unit. Yeah, going from 0% of the market being micro units to 28% is... Yeah, so you know, for somebody who's developing micro units, they're going to look at this and and say, oh well, I've got this is my I got to figure out who these twenty eight percent are, and market to them rather than looking at the people who aren't interested and get yeah. discouraged, right? Um, with cohabitation, it's a smaller number. It's only sixteen percent would be willing to do this. And the way we defined that was, how likely would you be to live in a cohabitation designated housing in which two or more units share a bathroom or kitchen if it were less expensive than a traditional apartment? So again. We're, we're creating that trade-off between the lack of amenities and the cost 
but very relative, you know, very few. I mean, sixty-two percent of people said they would be not at all likely. They would not even be open to this idea at all. Isn't this like? I mean, how does this really differ from like a typical roommate situation? I mean, now that you, I see you worded it this way, I mean, you know, in a with two or more units share. Okay, so we're saying units, but you're sharing a bathroom, you're sharing a kitchen. You know, I think what? the difference is uh, if you're going to go in with a group of between three and six roommates to rent some large apartment mm-hmm. in any of the, the inner you know neighborhoods, you choose the roommates, whereas this is a separate unit, so you right. didn't necessarily choose who was living in that unit. Yeah, I, that's my understanding of the definition okay. of this is that it's like, if you think of the floor plan, it's almost, it is like a dorm. It's like there's a common room, kitchen type area, and then each little unit has maybe like a, a very small kitchen type situation or a small sink or something but the main facilities are shared but yeah again you're not picking those other people that you're sharing with as opposed to with roommates you're you're it's you're hopefully going with your friends or at least vetting the people ahead of time we found them on craigslist and you're um you know agreed to live together so so it's describing is basically like you know like almost like a rooming house you know where, where you yeah yeah rent the room and that's it, it yeah it's like well, a boarding house or something <laughs> yeah. like that so welcome to the new welcome that to was the new normal millennium. Rooming this houses what, were very popular in Boston two hundred yes. years ago, and Chelsea yeah. and Everett still. I think. Yeah, yeah, they that's, they that's still exist, but I guess they've got a new branding. But right now, yeah. right now, people don't you know not a lot of millennials, not a lot of young professionals. They, they prefer the control over you know they, they'll share space, but they'd rather have control. See, I wish yeah. I, you know I, I would I would love it if if more if more people were you know if there was more interest such that there would be different options. You know, just so we have different housing options and and where, you know, maybe you could live in a smaller space, but you could, yeah, like if you could choose what's important, you know, it's sort of, I don't know, I mean, it's, it'd just be nice if there were just more housing options so that, you know, the prices would come down and we could fit more and, you know, and, and uh, it's because the old joke is um, if everybody, if a housing weren't so expensive, everybody would be single forever. And uh, I'm kind of of that <laughs> mindset. <laughs> yeah. So the the final real estate trend that we asked about um so it's kind of this triad of 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 very trendy topics that we asked about in real estate was tod trans-oriented development and in contrast to the other two that we just talked about this was extremely popular so again how likely would you be to live in a transit-oriented development meaning a dense development of housing and retail and dining with minimal parking located at or near a public transit station that's how we define it for people 42% 42% would be very likely to do that, another 32% uh, somewhat likely. So three-quarters, basically, of these of this cohort that we talked to were on board with transit-oriented development, which is completely consistent because basically pretty much the definition of transit-oriented development is telling us exactly the things that they were the all saying. walkable neighborhood. It's walkable, it's near this, and you know, it, it, it relates to all of the things that we were hearing throughout the survey. So it makes sense that it would be very popular. So the TOD is extremely popular. Maybe one way to think about these co co housing arrangements or uh, micro unit arrangements would be if you marketed them instead as TOD <laughs> um, or or played up their transit oriented mm-hmm. benefits um, and and downplayed their smaller size or um, shared amenities. Maybe that would be a way to market to this group and kind of expand your group a little bit beyond what you know what what you'd be getting if you focused on the other the other parts from a, from a real estate developer standpoint it'd be really interesting to think about um, if you were to build a whole bunch of units that had some shared amenities and then you could allow if if you know so let's say each unit could 
um, had room for two people, like a, like a two-person bedroom. But then you could allow people to slice that up however they wanted. So if you had a group that came in with four or six roommates, then they could they could take you know maybe three units um, and maybe get a little bit of a, a discount on the price. Whereas someone else might say, well, I don't have you know three other friends, so I'll just take one of the units and mm-hmm. take my chances. You know, but it, yeah, I mean, it, there's you know, I'm sure there are different ways of wording the cohabitation question that. Um, that are out there. You know, we kind of pretty much took the wording from ULI that they had written, so they know a lot more about real estate and real estate trends than I than I do. I'm kind of going by faith in them. Yeah. I've seen articles in City Lab about this idea that they they're actually building these co housings as part of you know these kind of incubator workspace type things. So not only do you have the shared communal work system on the you know on one floor you go upstairs and you then you live with all the people that you're working with i mean it sounds like a it's like college yeah. sounds like a little bit like college yeah, yeah. so i think it's like the trade-off between you know wanting to wanting to be around other people and, and versus uh you know needing some space yeah so yeah space. in college we had the the computer lab you know <laughs> on the first floor and then there was the 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 dining the dining hall and yeah <laughs> So, I mean, uh, maybe that's, I, but I think, again, it's like, when I look at the survey, I do see, I think transit is extremely important. Transportation is extremely important. But I also see um, folks who are, you know, maybe at a, a point in their lives are living in these cities. A lot of them are thinking they're not going to be living in the cities forever. A lot of them are thinking, gee, I would like to own something. And if I had my druthers, I'd probably want to own a single family house. So then in a lot of ways, this this group of young professionals is a lot more like their parents than maybe the stereotype gives them credit for being. But but it does um, seem that even even if um, e- even given those preferences, there's there's still this area where the preferences come together with the walkable community. And I yeah. think it, it, it matches, may, may, that might be a factor of where they're living. I mean, there's a lot of that in New England. There's a lot of um, outlets. Outerlying towns and suburbs that have a very walkable, you know, pattern um, from their original development. Yeah, so I, I guess it'd be interesting to see how this matches yes. up with the same survey of young professionals in Phoenix or something like that. You know, to see. Yeah, there are surveys out there. I would say, you know, to um, the the Urban Land Institute nationally has done surveys uh, called Gen Y in Housing, and this was a truly, you know, traditional representative telephone poll where they called a bunch of people and. Um, you know, got demographics that matched up with that the demographics of that age group and did it around the country. So, there is a survey out there called Gen Y and Housing that they just did. Um, I'd encourage you to take a look if you're looking to kind of get a more national slash representative view, and then you could compare these young professionals and kind of see how how far off base maybe we were. <laughs> um, but again, I think that. In terms of the people that, you know, the Urban Land Institute would be looking to, you know, to get to in terms of folks who are likely to, you know, buy in the future, who have the means to buy in the future, people who are working downtown and who are plugged in and kind of have a voice in, in you know, in these decisions, like this is a pretty good, um, a pretty good survey of those folks. And I think it's telling us that transit does, you know, does matter to them. Well, Rich, this has been fascinating. Um, this has been, uh, it feels like it's been a really long discussion. I'm not sure how we're doing on time. It has. So I, hope we have, I hope we have some listeners left out there. Um, and, and Rich, are there, is most of this already um, public? If people want to read the data themselves? Yes. So uh, um, 
Regarding the Charlie Baker and MBTA stuff, you can find the full cross tabs for that on our website, which is massingpolling.com. And then the Urban Land Institute results, um, the top line results, uh, and the slides from the presentation um, at the event where the, the results were announced are both available on um, ULI Boston's website. So I think it's boston.uli.org is the, is, is, is the, the uh, URL there. Um, the cross tabs for that are not available. They belong to ULI. They are the client and they paid for them. So they're using them internally and I think sharing them with their members and you know it's kind of a benefit of membership to you know have access to that kind of stuff. So we talked a little bit about kind of the cross tabs tonight, but I mean the actual breakdowns and numbers and everything are reserved. So, um, but there's a lot there in terms of the uh, the slides and the um, and uh, and the top line. And we will put links to those on on the website. And uh, before you become a member of uh, the Urban Land Institute, you should become a member of Transit Matters. And you can do that at transitmatters.info because we can't do this alone. So sign up to subscribe to the blog, the podcast. Sign up to volunteer and uh, get in touch. Let us know what is kind of transit stuff is important to you and um, what, what we can do together. Um, you can find us and follow us and engage us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. And email us at feedback at transitmatters.info. If you want to follow me, uh, Jeremy, I am on Twitter at Critical Transit and also uh, criticaltransit.com. And every once in a while, I post uh, Transit Matters. And you can find me uh, on Twitter at hatchback31. And please... Um, whether you want to reach out to me at the transitmatters.info web, website or um, email, or you want to send me a tweet, let me know if there's uh, certain persons that you'd like to hear on the next podcast. We'd love to hear from you, uh, your feedback on the podcast, uh, or on any of the content we have on the website.